Welcome everybody to episode 10 of Generation Jihad. I'm Tom Jocelyn and I'm joined again this week by my colleague Bill Roggio. Hi everyone. There's a lot of talk in America these days about endless wars. It's a phrase you'll often hear from people on both the left and the right. It's so common that politicians who are otherwise opposed to one another share some of the same talking points. Take a look at President Trump's Twitter feed and you'll see that he's complained about America's endless wars more than once. So too have Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, two of Trump's left-wing challengers in the 2020 presidential contest. Of course, both Warren and Sanders dropped out of the race. But Joe Biden, the presumptive Democratic nominee, has been flirting with the endless wars rhetoric himself. He hasn't been quite so strident in that regard, but he has accused President Trump of not living up to his commitment to quote-unquote end the endless wars. Some or even much of the frustration underlying this criticism is understandable. If you told me on September 12, 2001 that American troops would still be in Afghanistan in 2020, I probably wouldn't have believed you. Actually, I, I know I wouldn't have believed you. I also wouldn't have believed you if you told me that in 2020, a Republican Secretary of State would come to view the Taliban as America's counterterrorism partner. And as we're recording this, I'm sure that Bill's blood pressure is probably rising just as I bring that up. It has. Yes. Well, we'll, we'll I'm sure we'll hit that once again. In any event, uh, you, Bill and I have covered these so-called endless wars for the better part of two decades. As our dedicated readers know, we are often critical of how they've been conducted. Our reporting and analysis have, have ticked off a fair number of U.S. officials, including recently. There's some behind-the-scenes stuff there that maybe we'll get into in the future. We've run afoul of public affairs officers more than once as well. You know who you are. You're probably listening. But we still think the endless wars narrative is shallow. It's myopic. And judging by some of the arguments I've seen on Twitter, there's often a fair amount of conspiratorial thinking driving it as well. No, neoconservatives, whoever they are, are not keeping America at war abroad. In any event, why is the endless wars narrative so shallow? Well, it focuses solely on America's presence in various theaters, as if that's all there is to the story, as if America's involvement is all that keeps wars going. Look, America can end its involvement at any time. It's fairly easy to withdraw troops. As Commander-in-Chief, President Trump can order withdrawal of American troops everywhere from Afghanistan to West Africa. A fair number of Americans would cheer that on. That doesn't mean that jihad will evaporate overnight, of course. Far from it. And as Bill and I are going to discuss in this episode, President Trump's predecessor, President Obama, tried to end the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. That didn't work out so well. Wars don't typically end. They are won or lost. Now, the jihadists face many obstacles. Their victory is far from guaranteed. But in some countries, they are closer to victory today than ever. In other theaters, their prospects look dim. We're going to get into that. Whether Americans are present or not, the jihadists will keep fighting on. Yet you don't hear anyone in America today speaking of the quote-unquote endless jihad. We've broken up this episode into three parts. First, we're going to do a brief survey of the Sunni jihadi world today, where they're fighting and what they're fighting for. Both ISIS and Al-Qaeda are waging jihad to resurrect an Islamic caliphate. And Bill and I are going to get into sort of what that actually looks like on the ground. Second, we're going to discuss some of the not-so-distant history, how the U.S. already tried to extricate itself from what we call the 9-11 wars. That is, the conflicts unleashed by 9-11 and its aftermath. Third, in the third part of this episode today, we're going to get into some thoughts on the endless jihad in an era of what some in Washington call great power competition. There's this idea in defense circles that only China and Russia matter today. But there's some obvious problems with that thinking. Even though you hear people say China, China, China all the time now in defense circles, there's more to the world than China. Let's get into it. So now in the first part here, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about what the Sunni jihadi world looks like today. And they're still fighting around the world. And, and there are many reasons why the Sunni jihadists are still fighting. But the principal one is that they're fighting to resurrect an Islamic caliphate. 
And of course, we saw this most recently in, uh, with ISIS in Iraq and Syria, where they actually claimed to, to resurrect a caliphate. But they're doing this, uh, the jihadis are fighting in multiple theaters with the same goal in mind. And that's often been obscured sort of in America's vision of what's going on. Bill, you and I have covered this you know, for too many years now. But we always marvel at the fact that people don't really understand that the central goal, really, ideological and political goal for the jihadis, is to resurrect a caliphate. Maybe you can start us off by walking us through what that actually looks like and what that actually means for them. Yeah, and Tom, you're right. I mean, first of all, you, you made me chuckle when you said, end the endless jihad. We don't, we don't hear anyone talking like that, and it's, uh, it's interesting. But that is really the wellspring of, of where this fighting um you know, where it all began. And the reality is, if, if the jihadists would just lay down their arms, this war would be over. We wouldn't be fighting. The U.S. does not want to be—U.S. military commanders, political leadership, hell, neither you or I want to be fighting these wars. Um, I'd be more than happy for this problem to go away, and I'd look for a job and another uh, career. But the reality is, is that's not happening. They yeah, it's actually actually are, just as a as a personal point. What I think probably people don't even know is that both you and I could have done something with our lives other than this for years. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, as I'm getting older here, that time is running out. But you know, <laughs> but the bottom line is that you know there still were plenty of other opportunities. Don't don't have to cover the jihad every day of our lives. But we're obsessed with the topic, and there are good reasons to. But what you know what you know what does it look like? I mean, today the jihadis are fighting across the globe and you know what does that actually look like so people understand that there is some connective tissue here there's quite a bit of it to what's going on and why the world looks the way it does yeah and and the reality is is this didn't you know the idea of a global caliphate didn't begin with the islamic state the al-qaeda the islamic state is an offshoot of al-qaeda it's a breakaway faction so to speak and it um al-qaeda has been very clear from the very beginning that it is fighting to um, establish local emirates with the overall goal of establishing an Islamic state. So what does that mean? They want to control territory. They want to resurrect the, the, the outline of the caliphate. They want to create a global caliphate and impose its, its harsh version of Sharia. If anyone wants to know what that actually looks like on the ground, the Taliban did a very, very good job of showing us what the enforcement of, of their version of Islamic law looks like during the 1990s up until the U.S. invasion. And that is just basically a return to almost middle age um, enforcement of punishments, um, no women's rights, no democracy, you know, all of that, you know, so we that's what it physically looks like on the ground. But what we see, you know, look, that was a problem in Afghanistan pre 9-11. That's pretty much the only emirate that existed. Today, you have the, the jihad has exploded, right? We have their Al Qaeda and the Islamic State are trying to build emirates in six main theaters here. You have Afghanistan. That's what the Taliban's Islamic emirate. Um, Al-Qaeda, of course, is backing that. But then you also have the Islamic State's Khorasan province, which is also, which is a rival now. It's made up of, the Islamic State's Khorasan province is made up of mainly former Afghan and Pakistani, um, disaffected Afghan and Pakistani Taliban commanders and fighters, as well as some other jihadist Islamic movement Uzbekistan and disaffected Al-Qaeda members. Um, they had also, they had established a, a, a mini emirate in northwestern Pakistan from 2007 up until about 2010-11 when um, the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan was fighting in there. And they're still fighting for that. They're, they've gone underground due to Pakistani military operations. And Bill, they even um, called it an emirate in northern Pakistan, they did. right? Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, it, it, look, at the, at the very beginning in 2003, 
You, they declared the Islamic Emirate of Waziristan. That's how far this goes back. And again, they were very clear that this was just these were they want to create their states, and then they then with the overall goal of establishing the caliphate. And that you are correct, Tom. Um, in Iraq and Syria, everyone's familiar what happened there. Al Qaeda, you know, and um, declared an Islamic state. They Al Qaeda, you know, created the Islamic State of Iraq back in 2006, 2007, that time frame, and ruled in large areas of Western and, and Central and Eastern Iraq, in Diyala, Salahuddin, Mosul, um, and obviously in Anbar province as well. Then you had the, the, the return of Al Qaeda in Iraq, which was the Islamic State of Iraq, which ultimately became the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. And then you had the whole schism between the two groups, right? Um, Al-Qaeda still has a presence in, in, in Idlib province. In, yeah, we, we definitely have to do an episode on that, but that's yep. just a, that's a tortuous episode to prepare for because there's so many ins and outs in explaining yep. all this. And I, I'm still following all of it. And I, you know, I've had about 20 updates. I went to write for Long War Journal on what's going on. And it's just maddening because I have to keep changing what I was going to, how I was going to write. I'm just trying to accumulate yeah. the facts. It, but yeah, but you know, we got- It's so complex. And, and, it is. and for you to cover that, Tom, I know how detailed you are. It's it's just so, it's tortuous, but it's there. And we know it's there. It's just trying to describe how that looks. That's why I constantly defer to you on this issue. Um, so you could do the heavy lifting for Yeah, me. well, we have, we have a rock in Syria, just for our <laughs> listeners. So we mentioned six main theaters. We have a rock in Syria. You can count them as one theater. Or you can count them as two, yeah. depending on how you look at it. I mean, basically, from ISIS's perspective, of course, it's one theater. Uh, and from the counter-ISIS campaign, it's one theater. But from Al-Qaeda's perspective, it's not. It's, it's two two, two, yeah. two theaters. So we have it down as two here just for the purposes of this. But, of course, you can look at it either way. But then, of course, you got other ones too, Bill, right? Right, you, yeah. We have, one of your we have Somalia and East Africa, which is uh, driven by Shabab, which is Al-Qaeda's branch there. Um, you know, uh, I would argue it's Al-Qaeda's most effective and, and most virulent Um uh, group uh, or branch. Uh, it, they're closest. It is, they're probably closest to building an emirate outside of Afghanistan. Probably. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean yeah. they. You know, you had a U.S. general uh, a year ago plus say that uh, Shabab controlled twenty five percent of Somalia. Now that's mostly largely rural areas, but you see how well the Taliban does with uh, doing with uh, holding rural area, rural areas. And I would argue that Shabab really is the is the Taliban of Africa. They they operate in very similar manners. They're very effective. Effective. They've uh, they've been persistent, and um, and they betray yeah. themselves that way too. They betray themselves as the Taliban of Africa. They yeah. their their allegiances to Ayman al Zawahiri and through him to the Taliban's Amir Habatul Al Khanzada. That's what their spokesman and the Amir both said on multiple occasions. So they are very consciously are a Taliban style emirate that's trying to rise in East Africa. Yeah. Yeah, it's I, I've always, you know, I've been fascinated by Shabab from the beginning before, you know, at its roots of the Islamic Courts Union. And um, look, we've been the U.S. has been launching airstrikes against its predecessor, the Islamic Courts Union, and then Shabab since 2006. That's 14 years. U.S. is heavily invested um, in supporting the Somali government. Um, and it yet and yet Shabab persists and it also operates outside. Look, there's attacks in Kenya and Tanzania and other places. But the Somalia is the sort of the focal point for for Al Qaeda East Africa, which is the official branch of, of Al Qaeda in the region. Then you have um, you have West Africa, which is just a, uh, a free for all both Al Qaeda and the Islamic State. 
uh, are operating in these areas. And you and Caleb did an excellent, uh, Caleb Weiss, our, our colleague at the Longhorn Journal, did an, an excellent job of, of discussing the, uh, the tensions and the infighting between the two groups in an article written last year. I highly recommend um, yeah, by the way, this this is, another, this, yeah. is, this is another theater. I was, I was happy to lean on Caleb for that one because uh, in West Africa, it's complicated. I mean, there were reports of cooperation between the ISIS outfit and the Al-Qaeda outfits there. Um, I don't think there was uh, – I don't think that that amounted to nothing. Uh, I think there is more to that story. In fact, you see some jihadi sources saying there's more to that story. But they've clearly resumed uh, infighting and have gone at it in recent weeks. So it's a it's another one of those stories where you, you, you kind of to keep track of this stuff you have to be on the the sort of beat for months and years at end. And it's you know a lot. To and cover. the inter- and the interesting thing about West Africa is the French are highly involved and vested in the situation there. These are mainly former French colonies, and they want to end the endless wars. New York Times had a great piece on this recently on how the French wants to extricate themselves but are finding it impossible to do. And the reason is because the jihadists aren't going anywhere. The French will leave. These are weak governments. These are ungoverned spaces, large desert areas that um, that both the Islamic State and, and Al-Qaeda's branch there um, are able to capitalize on. And it's so, you know, that, I, I, that article was, was actually, it's funny, when I read that, I'm like, Wow, this is this is exactly what Tom and I are talking about, and uh, it's a, yeah, you know, you know the, the French intervened. Just so people know, in 2012, Operation Serval was what it was called, um, and the point was to try and eject Al Qaeda and its allies. At that point, were building an emirate in Mali, and that was the idea: was they were building this Islamic emirate. It was modeled after other Islamic uh, proto emirates. So again, you could see the connective tissue between what they were trying to do there in West Africa and elsewhere, and just the French have taken the lead there with a supporting role from the Americans. But the idea there is that the Western presence is to basically prevent this jihadi nation state from uh, being built, from becoming a, a an established authority in the region. Yeah, and, and, and what's happened since? The jihad has expanded beyond the borders of Mali into Niger and and other countries. Burkina, Burkina Faso. Chad. And, yeah, yeah sure, right. Sure. And, and that's with French and U.S. intervention. Can you imagine what would happen if, if we pulled out? And um, obviously the last uh, major theater here um, – is Yemen, um, and that is, you know, both Al-Qaeda and uh, Islamic State, to a lesser extent, are fighting basically the Game of Thrones war there, where you have multiple actors. You have the Iranian-backed Houthis, and then you have the separatists, and then you have that the NASA, that the rump uh, uh, government, and, you, you know, and then you have the Islamic State, and you have the um, you have the Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which has controlled territory twice there. Again, numerous U.S. airstrikes. We detailed this last week in in the drone campaign episode, and I highly recommend go back and listen to that. Um, and despite numerous U.S. attempts to decapitate Al Qaeda's leadership, it's still it's Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula still pers- persists there. So, um, you know, these are the major theaters. There's obviously others. We have like the Islamic State's operations in, in the Sinai and we have North Africa and whatnot. But as far as the very, very hot theaters, these are the ones. Yeah, you know, we, we, we've documented, too, how the Jihais have tried to build emirates in the Philippines and Marawi, yep. where they took over a city. I think the population of Marawi was about 200,000 people. And with a relatively small force, they tried to build a, an emirate there. You know, one of your favorites, Bill, is the Islamic Caucus Emirate. Uh, yep. I, know you, I know you have a very disturbing uh, uh, 
uh, disturbing uh, like for the Islamic Caucus Emirates uh, sort of apparel and their aesthetic. I know you like their T-shirts and stuff. I mean, I, I think it's kind of actually a shame that they, they've had T-shirts and apparel, even though they are now look like they're defunct in Chechnya and Dagestan. They have a small outfit that's still going in Syria. Um, it's it's kind of uh, really on us that basically they had apparel. We don't. I mean, why, why the heck does the Islamic Caucus Emirate have apparel and Longwood Journal doesn't? But anyway. Yeah, you know. it, it is one of those questions that really does need an answer. But you got to admit, Ibn Khattab and Doku Umarov knew how to be stylish jihadis, Tom. Well, I, I'm not going to admit that, but, uh, you, uh, but, but if we ever if we ever do have Long War Journal apparel, uh, I I'm going to push back on the idea that we need to be modeled after the Islamic Caucus Emirate. But uh, in any event, but you know, listen, we had we had discussions about all that back in the days too, Bill. I remember remember you know both Shabab and Islamic Caucus Emirate we have on this list here we've talked about. You know, it's interesting how the the great extent of great energy that was put in the counterterrorism field to deny that there was an international jihadi yeah. uh, ideological. Um, component to that, where Al Qaeda was invested in trying to build Emirates. Now, in Shabab, of course, in, in East Africa, their prospects are looking a lot better than the Islamic Caucus Emirates. But the idea was basically the same. And you, you had some people who were very heavily invested in the idea that neither, until to this day, that neither one of them were really true jihadi outfits. And that's sort of that disconnect the dots, disconnect the dots paradigm that we've talked about so many times, where people just desperately try and prevent, pretend these are all just purely local concerns and not really part of an international jihad. Yeah, I was always amazed at the um, the attempts to dis- disconnect. Look, I mean, the idea. Look, did the Russians possibly inflate the the importance of some of these uh, of the Islamic Caucus Emirates at the expense of uh, rebel um, caucus groups? Sure, they did, but that it didn't mean they didn't exist. And these groups were, and the Islamic Caucus Emirate at by the end was the really the primary driver of violence, the, the primary insurgent group there in the Caucasus. It was conducting terrorist attacks in Moscow and other Russian cities. Um, so, yeah, attempts to the attempts to, to disconnect the docks on the Islamic Caucus Emirates from the jihadist brand. It, it always amazed me. It and still you, amazes me. And it's it's a classic example of of attempts to uh, just try to pretend that these groups don't have any connective tissue. And, you know, I, I don't want to get off on a whole tangent here because we're going to move on. But, you know, what's interesting, too, about the Islamic Caucus Emirate is that the full extent of Al-Qaeda's support for the Islamic Caucus Emirate or more of the extent or much of the extent of Al-Qaeda's support for it and affiliation with it uh, came about because of the competition with ISIS, where ISIS tried to pick off Islamic Caucus Emirate commanders. They did. Um, that, that sort of um, competition combined with the Russians' decapitation strikes against Islamic Caucus Emirates' leadership sort of basically left the group moribund and basically defunct to this day. But, you know, there was a huge push from the Al-Qaeda Global Network to try and prevent ISIS from poaching from the Islamic Caucus Emirates' ranks. And that all that evidence is very hard to square with the idea they're just a local endeavor that isn't really part of Al-Qaeda. You know, when you, when you have Ayman al-Zawahiri and Al-Qaeda ideologues around the globe everywhere from London and Canada to, yes, London and Canada, Canada folks, they have ideologues there, to uh, Yemen and elsewhere, you know, chiming in and, and proclaiming the purity of the Islamic Caucus Emirate. It's very difficult to pretend that's just some sort of local endeavor. But, you know, all this all this goes to debunking the idea, which we still see common out there, that Al-Qaeda was only interested in attacking the West, because 
Yeah, ISIS has a presence in most, if not all, the places we just talked about. But what they were trying to do, what ISIS tried to do in declaring the caliphate, was basically compete with the proto-emirates that al-Qaeda was building in all these areas. And al-Qaeda was always about establishing these emirates and building the caliphate, and attacking the West was always seen as a step or a tactic toward that goal, as you and I have said so many times, Bill. And... You know, the idea that they're only interested in attacking the West is flat false. Most of their resources, most of Al-Qaeda's resources to this day are spent in these sort of these so-called local conflicts, which are really part of a global jihad. And um, you can see that ISIS, when they came about and rose to power in 2014, what they try to do was get basically members of these different proto-emirates and regional branches that Al-Qaeda had and get them to side with ISIS and Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and have them throw in with their province structure. Well, the ISIS provincial structure, their provinces— was a deliberate attempt to carve out from al-Qaeda's proto-emirates. It was to basically say, well, you know, al-Qaeda has this long game. They're trying to build these emirates in these different areas. Well, here, here are the caliphate's provinces here and now, you know, and, and basically come join us. You can become part of the, the, the single unitary caliphate. Um, it, was a, it was a call that was resisted by al-Qaeda. Uh, ISIS didn't have nearly the amount of success in overrunning al-Qaeda that some analysts predicted it would have, but they definitely carved into al-Qaeda's market share, and in some places they definitely ate into what al-Qaeda was doing. But the idea that al-Qaeda was only interested in attacking the West is just as proven by so much evidence that it's really not credible, and anybody who says that really isn't paying attention. But, you know, that idea um, leads us into the second part of our conversation, Bill, which is that, um, you know, this idea when you hear what the endless wars rhetoric, the idea is that somehow these sort of bloodthirsty warmongers are keeping the war alive, and if if they were just out of the way, then we could just end America's role in all this. Well, you know, we had a president, President Barack Obama, who for eight years tried to end the endless wars. Um, you know, he you know, he uh, claimed to end the war in Iraq. He said he was going to bring it to a responsible end. That was a big part of his marketing campaign for the 2012 presidential election. That was wrong, obviously. He didn't bring it to a responsible end. He claimed to be doing the same thing in Afghanistan. He said that, you know, in Afghanistan, America's presence is coming to an end. And there was this big push to end America's presence in both those areas and declare that that basically being the end of it. We don't have to worry about it. And, you know, I pulled up a quote from um, Barack Obama from 2012. And I think this this goes to show that there was almost no pushback on the idea at the time. You and I remember this, Bill, the idea yeah. that this was this was truly going to end these wars. We said, you know, you know, U.S., we say we said then what we're saying now, we're consistent. U.S. can end its presence in all these places. It's not going to end the jihad, right? This is why it's this yeah, is why that, the title yeah. is the endless jihad. Tom, so let me just give you, the, let me give you the quote from Obama and sure, we'll go sure. from there. As we emerge from a decade of conflict abroad and economic crisis at home, it's time to renew America. An America where our children live free from fear and have the skills to claim their dreams. This time of war began in Afghanistan, and this is where it will end. With faith in each other and our eyes fixed on the future, let us finish the work at hand and forge a just and lasting peace. And that was in 2012, and we're sitting here in 2020, and, you know, there are a lot of people who would say that it's, you know, cast some sort of nefarious, gives some sort of nefarious reasons for why America is still in Afghanistan and still has a smaller presence in Iraq. But the bottom line is, as we just talked about, the, the fundamental reason the jihadis are fighting on. That's why. You can say you want to end the war all you want, but that doesn't mean you're going to end the jihad. Right, Bill? Yeah, it, it's absolutely correct. You know, look, I'll just as a, a quick anecdote, I can't tell you how many times I've heard things like, Bill, you're going to be out of a job 
once the war ends in Iraq, once the U.S. withdraws, the what are you going to cover? Um, same thing. I just heard this question the other day. Once the U.S. withdraws from Afghanistan, the reality is, is it's actually going to be more work for us, Tom, because yeah, the, yeah. Uh, the jihadists won't stop fighting. Um, it's going the 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 war, these wars will get worse without American involvement. Do you and I? Yes, I wish we could end the war in Afghanistan, and I would actually argue. We've probably done all we can in Afghanistan, um, and the presence of U.S. troops there, and and it is probably not a good idea, particularly if you we don't have a winning strategy or a strategy to advance the interests of the Afghan government. But the, but the point is is that wars don't end. I mean, you just don't end them because you say I want to stop fighting. Well, if the other if your enemy isn't willing to stop fighting as well. That war will continue. Your involvement in it may may end. But guess what? That could come back and bite you. I mean, wars are either won or lost at the end of the day. And to say we're going to end the endless wars, it's this narrative to me, it's just, it's simplistic. And what I find ironic about it was, look, if President Obama, when President Obama said this four years ago, six years ago, um, those pro-military people on the right were would call this anti-American, anti-troop, anti-mission, you name it. And now you have, I see the same people saying this is a responsible way to end the war. So I hope that, you know, the irony certainly isn't lost on me, but I, it seems to be lost on all those making those arguments. And it's, you know, the, we get into, that's a whole political discussion that I really don't want to get into here. But, you know, the tribalism of politics makes the, just magnifies this problem to multiple degrees. And it's, uh, I find it to be, um, you know, that's how I, to me, that's how you know who's serious and who's not serious about these issues when you see how they react to what Obama said about ending the endless wars and how you react to how they react to Trump about when they say they want to end the endless wars. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you can see a lot of commonalities, ironically, in what President Trump is saying and what President Obama said, you know, and and in fact, you know, the we'll get into this in the next part of the next segment of this episode. But, you know, a lot of the Trump uh, posture, uh, war fighting. Uh, since 2017 has really been Obama plus. It's not really been some fundamental sea change in what's going on. And we'll talk about that. But, um, you know, just to connect this back to the jihadi effort, this all started with, you know, Abdullah Azam, an ideologue who had great influence on Osama bin Laden, you know, ruling in a fatwa that jihad was obligatory until all Muslim territory was liberated. And, you know, I've seen some people try and pretend this was a sort of a defensive ruling or defensive jihad. But you look at what Azam wrote, and I have it here in my library. I have multiple copies of his fatwas. Um, and what Azam wrote was that basically until if even a, a, a piece of Muslim territory the size of a hand, the hand span, is ruled by infidels, then it's obligatory to wage jihad. So he was saying that even if a piece of ground the size of your hand, if you push your hand on the size of the ground, even if a piece of territory that was once ruled by Islamic caliphs and was once part of an Islamic empire, even if, if that piece of territory is ruled by a non-Muslim, then it, jihad is obligatory. That's an, that's an imperialistic and an offensive jihad if there ever was one. I mean, unless you think that parts of Spain should belong to a jihadi caliphate today, uh, you know, which is what he argued, then that's not defensive, you know. And I think the Spanish would probably look a little puzzled if you came to them and said, hey, you know, we have to give over, you know, part of what 
what they term Andalus to the jihadis, you know. But this, but this idea of of resurrecting caliphate, you know, that was part of Azam's teachings. It's part of the early ideologues, and it, it's evolved and morphed over time. But it's still with us to this day. And the idea that it's going to go poof overnight because the U.S. withdraws from anywhere is just sort of ludicrous. And it's also strategically narcissistic. It basically says views everything. And this is one of the problems with the endless war narrative: is that you know, if if America, whatever America does, is what's going to define all of reality, and that's just not the case. Um, it, it puts it puts the burden on us. If we just stop fighting, this war will end. But as you noted, Spain would have to withdraw from half of its territory. Uh, even and, and and not just a Muslim government, but a Muslim, yeah, I, an acceptable Muslim right. government, which any of the governments of North Africa, of the Middle East, none of them are legitimate to them. So this fighting would continue in Saudi Arabia and Iraq and, Syria, you know, all over the place. So this idea that it's just the United States that will end these wars by by bowing out, it's, you know, it's a simplistic idea that that shows just how little people understand what the what our enemies are doing. And this is something you and I talk about. And this is why we cover the jihadis, not just cover what the Americans are doing in the fighting or the West is doing the fighting, but what the jihadis are doing and saying it's important to there is no if you don't understand the nature of your enemy, his goals, his strategy and his objectives, then how can you wage a war? And that's something that we've refused to do. And obviously, we're going to discuss this in the next section. This is part of the failures of the 9-11 wars or what we call the long war. Yeah, actually, we'll talk about it in just one second, you know, but, you know, one of the one of the arguments that was sort of advanced and still advanced to this day to try and get around the fact that there is connective tissue to all these efforts is the idea that these jihadi groups are all just local. You know, it's all local. Don't don't hassle me. It's local, you know, um, and or, or don't hassle me. I'm a local basically is the, the version of the jihad you can see in some analytic circles. And, of course, President Obama had this vision of ISIS, the predecessor to ISIS in Iraq. Now, as you, if you've heard us in the three ten episodes, you've probably heard us multiple times uh, say that, you know, President Bush's decision to invade Iraq definitely opened up a Pandora's box of problems, including opened up the political space for the jihadis to pursue building an emirate in Iraq. And that was the proximate first cause of what you see in the rise of ISIS. However, once the jihadis laid down their roots and were, were going about building their emirate, sort of the U.S. government uh, never caught up to what was actually going on in terms of its political rhetoric. I mean, there was some in the military channels with the surge and other aspects of it where there was a brief sort of understanding of what was going on. But the political rhetoric never caught up to it. And President Obama actually saw the predecessor to ISIS as a local endeavor. He, he compared it to a local mafia at one point. And I'll never forget there was this, this great scene, I wish there was video of it, where and I think, I think it's Michael Gordon wrote about this in his book, Endgame on the Iraq War, where General Petraeus at the time, who was sort of a, a figure that was being uh, vilified by the left, sort of has this debate with President Obama about the jihadis in, in Iraq. And Obama's pressing his case, it's all local, don't worry about it. And Petraeus is arguing, no, that the predecessor to ISIS has global aspirations. And I think that it's pretty obvious that Petraeus was correct in that regard when you see how ISIS evolved from there, from, from after the troop withdrawal from Iraq. But you can see that, you know, while not all these jihadi emirates have global ambitions in terms of a, in terms of striking the U.S. today, they are all part of a, a worldwide movement and worldwide ideology and, and in many cases, worldwide organizations. And ISIS clearly wasn't going to confine like a local mafia to, to sort of shaking down people in Iraq. They expanded and were going to expand uh, quite dramatically, and they did. 
Um, but you know, Bill, you and I have talked about this a little bit too, and this is part of the mythology based on endless wars. There's this idea that the U.S. military is just, you know, desperate to stay in them. But you know, we saw even though Petraeus objected to President Obama's take on all that, um, and he fought for the counterinsurgency doctrine at first, the counterinsurgency doctrine and the, that posture was gutted by the Obama administration in both Iraq and then Afghanistan. And there was little, very little pushback from Petraeus and company and others who dedicated their life to coin. And we don't really see a lot of pushback from big DOD today about getting out of the, end, the so-called endless wars. They seem to really uh, sort of endorse the idea, right, Bill? Yeah, that, look, General Petraeus, not only did he not push back um, or resign, he took the um, commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan after Iraq was gutted, and then he took CIA director after Af- Afghanistan was gutted. So, you know, that to me is tacit approval. So, yeah, there is no pushback. You've you've had general after general um, acquiesce to the idea that the U.S. needs to leave. And ironically, it seems like only AFRICOM is the, is the only regional command that seems to understand what al-Qaeda is. I mean, you read their press releases on strikes. They're the only one that puts out regular press releases announcing that airstrikes against Shabab. And, and in them, they talk about how al-AQ, al, or how Shabab is a, a threat. It wants to attack its neighbors. It wants to attack the United States. None of the other military commanders or military commands are acknowledging this. And it's really is troubling. The military, the reality is, is the military doesn't like these wars um they're difficult they don't show a lot in um it's hard to show progress look at afghanistan look at somalia 14 years later after a drug and, and you have a you have erotic political decision making and political rhetoric yep. and po- the politics behind this i mean the military is a function of the political scene in the u.s and you know they're to their defense in this regard they haven't exactly had a stable political platform to operate from uh you know with all the erratic but but again they're not objecting a lot of times either so Look, you know. the military, and it's, look, the military serves at the, you know, officers and commanders serve at the pleasure of the President of the United States. I get that. But if if this was so important, why haven't we seen a general resign over policy, um, over the withdrawal of Af- from Afghanistan? Instead, you've had them cheerleading. I mean, General Nicholson, on his way out the door, was talk, ha- talking about how we need to end the war in Afghanistan. That's, you know, if anyone should have understood the importance of, of of the fight in Afghanistan at that time, it should have been him. But he was, you know, he basically just parroted. And look, and the reality is, is generals who have come through the door, you know, they failed upwards. Uh, General Dunford led U.S. forces in Afghanistan. What, what happened to him? Did he get demoted or, or pushed aside? No, he became chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff. To me, that's that's approval for policy. They don't have to take them, but reality is, is a lot of our military leadership are... are they're climbers. You know, they're going to get that next job. They're going to get that next command and, the you know, the prestige that goes with it and, frankly, the pension that will come with it as well. And, the you know, they're not serving. They may be serving the at the pleasure of the president of the United States, but they're not serving the interests of U.S. national security. Somebody needs to stand up at some point and say, tell people what is going wrong and why this matters. But our military leadership is unwilling to do so. 
Yeah, now we have the military's endorsed this uh, withdrawal agreement with the Taliban, which is based on a, a whitewash of the Taliban. Now we're going to pretend that the Taliban is our counterterrorism partner in Afghanistan, which we've eviscerated that idea too many times to have to repeat it here. But the idea that the idea that the Taliban is now a de facto American ally in what was known in the 9-11 wars is uh, really a theater of the absurd. And basically why I, I haven't advocated for a continued American presence in Afghanistan for a while, uh, contrary to what you see some morons on yeah. Twitter saying. because. Yeah, right. Uh, because um, you know, I, I can't, I can't have Americans. You know, I, I, the idea of Americans fighting in a war that nobody really understands and that nobody really endorses, and that the U.S. military leadership it doesn't even really see the Taliban as it's uh, for what it is anymore. And the State Secretary of State Pompeo and others are busy whitewashing the Taliban. I mean, the idea that we're going to have Americans dying in that war sort of strikes me as. Uh, Pretty off-putting, you know. Uh, so the, the it, Taliban almost killed General Miller. What two years ago, when they killed General Zak in an attack at, at a, a provincial council meeting in uh, Kandahar province, they came a, a, a they, they he had to be ushered out of the room. Some reports said even had to be hidden behind a desk, and and he is kowtowing to them. I mean. You know what? We have a State Department that can do that, but I wish our generals would be generals and, and stand up for what, what what is right and what is wrong. And it's just, frankly, it's disgusting. And we can we could talk about this all day of uh, Tom and I's frustration with the U.S. military leadership and its abdication of its role of, of fighting our enemies. But uh, we'll move on from that. Yeah, well, just one other quick point on that. You know, since the February 29th withdrawal deal, which being obscured in some of the press porting, especially this week, we saw these brutal ISIS attacks. There's the one in Nangahar they claimed at a funeral. And then there was one, um, actually, for folks who are listening to this, it'll be last week when you hear, when you actually hear this. But anyway, so last week we had ISIS uh, claimed a big attack in Nangahar. And then there's this attack on a maternity ward in Kabul. And you can see the State Department real quick, you know, jumps on this and says, oh, you know, we need the Taliban to help us fight ISIS because look at these barbaric attacks. Well, a couple things about that. One, um, the Taliban, again, this is is why the endless wars are really an endless jihad. The Taliban went on the offensive after the February 29th withdrawal accord was signed with the U.S. The Taliban did. It wasn't that the U.S. and the Afghan government went on the offensive. No, the Taliban did because it wasn't a peace accord. The Taliban went on offensive throughout the country, claiming several hundred attacks, maybe even more. And according to Reuters, executing 4,500 attacks, many of them small, but still 4,500 attacks in 45 days or more than more than 100 per day. That's what the Taliban did. But you don't see that uh, in, in, in all this reporting and being clearly, clearly stated that that's what's going on. Moreover, you had the Taliban has consistently and overall rejected a ceasefire. The U.S. has been groveling to the Taliban, pleading the Taliban for a ceasefire in Afghanistan. So has the Afghan government. So has the EU. So have other parties. Pleading with the Taliban for a ceasefire. Guess what? It's the Taliban says, no, we're, we're fighting to win. And so part of the endless wars critique that I think um, or, or rhetoric that we find to be so problematic and shallow and myopic and really just ignorant is that part of the reason we, we find it to be all those things is because it doesn't take into account that the jihadis fight on and the Taliban has fought on. And that's the point, right? And that's why the war isn't over. It's because the Taliban doesn't want it to be over. The Taliban's been extreme, you know, I'm not going to belabor this point, extremely clear about what its goal is. Establishment of the Islamic Emirate and in, installing its emir, Mullah Habibullah, uh, as the leader of all of Afghanistan, which the Taliban says it represents. It's and in the fact, only representative. And in fact, they call Habibullah Al-Qanzada the emir of the faithful. Both Al-Qaeda and the Taliban call him the emir of the faithful, which yeah. is aspirations for political rule outside of Afghanistan, despite the fact that they're often portrayed as a national nationalist movement, which is, of course, another one of the Taliban apologia talking points, you know. 
Yeah, and 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 look, they're telling us this. They're acting in a manner that uh, reinforces this, and we grovel to them. Not you and I, Tom. We'll be the last people. I'm not groveling to anybody. To them. Yeah, right. But the United States, <laughs> our leadership grovels the Taliban. Look, you know, you had said earlier that you know the, this is Obama plus. I'll give the Obama administration some credit. It walked away from when the Taliban insisted on calling itself the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. Well, and and yeah. as well as, you know, no ceasefire and all of the terrible, horrible things in that deal. At least the Obama administration wasn't willing to do that. So there's also some Obama minuses in, tr- in the, the Trump administration. Oh, well said. Good point. Yeah, definitely. Good point. Uh, yeah, I was talking just purely about what. Yeah, the, no, the in war general, fight, it has the war, the, the war, I'm talking about the actual war fighting, the actual yeah, war fight yes. policy. But yeah, yeah, but no, there's no doubt the Trump administration took a deal with the Taliban that the Obama administration rejected. Um, which tells you uh, quite a bit about where we're at here. Uh, but, you know, look, uh, you know, if you listen to this, it's not that we think that the endless wars rhetoric or notion or narrative is without any merit. You and I, Bill, have criticized this thing, various aspects of this for years. Um, we have all, all, all sorts, there are all sorts of legitimate criticisms from both the left and the right of, of this, uh, for sure. Um, but, you know, one of the things that we've talked about, which probably is missed, is that, and, and, this is despite the fact that counterfactuals are difficult. It's always very difficult to put put you know sort of what the but for world would have looked like. Um, but it's possible the U.S. did miss an early opportunity to knock out Al Qaeda and avoid the whole endless wars, long war scenario, right? I mean, we've talked about how there's this sort of mythology has been built up about the light footprint in Afghanistan and the CIA's Operation Jawbreaker and how this was a smashing success, but it really wasn't. I mean, the, the principal. American effort in 2001, late 2001, should have been to kill Osama bin Laden, Ayman al-Zawahiri, other members of the al-Qaeda senior leadership hierarchy, also Mullah Omar, who stood by his man and defended Osama bin Laden even after 9-11, again, contrary to what the Taliban apologists will will tell you. Um, But, you know, they didn't. The U.S. did not get them. They allowed them to to, to sneak out of the Tora Bora Mountains and live to fight another day. And that we've talked about that, Bill, you and I personally. And we're, we're going to have to return to this. I know I keep saying these in these episodes. We have so many episodes we have to return to. <laughs> we're going to have to return to this one. But that, you know, one of the reasons why this has led to an endless war scenario or a long war scenario, as we call it, is because the, there have been a few fleeting moments to wait to have de- decisive force. This was one of them, and the U.S. didn't do it. Yeah, uh, you know, Tom, uh, as you were saying this, I, I came up with an idea. I think we should change our name to the Endless Wars Journal. What do you think? Uh, bad uh, idea? Yeah. No, I mean, maybe that, maybe, that, maybe Endless Jihad ja- ja- Journal. Jihad Journal. Yeah, there you yeah. go. Yeah. Uh, look, Rumsfeld's light foot, uh, footprint strategy was praised by nearly everyone when he did it um, after the U.S. invasion. But the reality is, I think if, if history is properly written, it will it will go down as the biggest uh, the, the the prime reason that why we are fighting in a so called endless war, and look if this and if this was me I would have put every U S air mobile asset every deployable division possible in the region the Torbor Mountains, and demanded that whatever was there whoever was there would walk out immediately. Or nothing walks out. There wouldn't be a frog, a tree, a, nothing. There, a plant. Nothing would would have survived the onslaught. Would we have lost? See, they were risk averse then, casualty averse then. Instead, what did we do? We relied on local militia to 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 contain them with special forces and rangers and some other units. We didn't have enough. We didn't act decisively. I look. 
Again, hard to prove the counterfactual, but if Osama bin Laden and Zawahiri and all of the Al-Qaeda leaders and operatives did not survive or were captured during that operation, they were. would we have had this explosion of jihad? Instead, they slipped out and they were able to reestablish themselves. And, you know, look, the, the, the prestige of, of surviving Tora Bora was significant. Yeah, uh, you bet. You bet. The, I mean... So that, I mean, that really is, that's our first criticism of this, you know, and the other one is for me personally is, you know, you go shopping and we'll take care of it, but that's a whole nother issue. I always hated that from the Bush administration or from President Bush himself, but yeah, there's a, we are always seen as being cheerleading this war. We can sit down and do 20 episodes on the failures of, of these 9-11 wars. Yeah, to be, to be and, fair, I think there's just a handful of critics who see us as cheerleaders. I don't think most people yeah. see us as cheerleaders. You know, I think it's just a sort of, you know, some people I'd rather not address, you know, on Twitter. No, but the reality is, is uh, it's just frustrating to watch. This is the hardest part of my job personally is to watch and be able to predict failure and be able to do nothing about it except for to 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 explain it to to and well that's really all that's really our, our job though I mean we don't we don't have any policy making role so you know nobody yeah. you know very rarely is any policymaker will actually listen to us uh, you know on this stuff especially when it comes to Afghanistan or anything else and so you know it is what it is you know yeah. um, my my favorite uh, character from Greek mythology is Cassandra and she's widely un- when someone says someone's a Cassandra they call them a crybaby what people don't understand is is that Cassandra was given the gift of sight but she was cursed with people failing to listen so when the Tro- when the greeks came to attack troy she'd be like don't open the horse there's Roman- there's trojans in there and everyone laughed at her and then of course troy falls so you know that that's really where we've we've tom and i have been on that's not inflating what we've done but we've explained why the withdrawal from iraq was a bad idea we've explained that the afghan surge was going to fail we explain you know talked about all you know pakistan's role and this and that and the peace deal we predicted what was going to be in that peace deal and why it would fail yeah withdrawal and deal withdrawal deal, withdrawal deal. sorry yeah. it's it's uh, they've it's ingrained not, it those headlines yeah. ingrained it in my brain yeah um yeah so-called peace deal and so yeah. Anyway, a little little venting there, but it's that's the you know, there's been probably no greater critics of this war uh, than you and I, and but we come at it not from an anti-war perspective, but and from not from an and, and not from an anti-American perspective. I mean, for all of our criticisms of the way the U.S. military is handled this, that's really what's a lot of driving the endless wars rhetoric is. There is this reflexive sort of critique of the U.S. military or desires the U.S. military is the prime bad actor and stuff. We see it when it comes to Afghanistan, some of the criticisms. And I'm sorry for all the things we criticize the U.S. military has done. Do I think that the U.S. military was worse than al-Qaeda in Iraq? No. Despite, you know, Abu Ghraib and other things, you know, al-Qaeda in Iraq is still the, there are still the butchers there and, and did things that were horrendous. Is the U.S. military worse than the Taliban? No. I'm sorry. You know, the Taliban is still a barbaric movement that accounts for more civilian casualties than anybody. So, you know, the whole point is this idea, there is absolutely an element of this, not saying all of it, okay, I'm not saying everybody endorses, but there is an element of anti-Americanism involved here too, which is a difficult thing to discuss and diagnose. Um, but it's there. I mean, you and I have seen it. You know, we have we have some people who criticize us, and their first criticism is, "Well, they're Americans." Okay, well, what does that mean? You know, I mean, so we're Americans, so our opinion doesn't count. You know, um, our 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 perceptions of the facts don't count. You know, so this is all a very complex thing. You know, dealing with all this, but um, I think anti-Americanism is probably a bigger point than I, part of it than I've even 
even let on. But now it's been now obviously that's now boiled way beyond that and is now basically people have just basically fed up, fed up with the whole thing and they just want out. And I, I can't, like I said, I can't entirely blame them and neither can you, Bill. I mean, we, we documented why this thing is not uh, not working overall. Yeah, absolutely. Look, the, the reality is, is endless wars is when the narrative is when isolationists meet um, the anti-war crowd. That's what you get. That's what we have. And, you know, it's uh, it's very frustrating and the isolationists are are, are teaming up with the, the the people who frankly dislike American soldiers and anything that the US military does they really should consider that when they when they talk like this yeah well you know I mean we, we we've had other criticisms too of the wars we mentioned Iraq and opening up the political space for a caliphate building project there of course uh, but you know it's interesting you know this is where the political criticisms don't necessarily go we don't go with the herd because yeah you can criticize the 2003 invasion sure. But then, you know, Obama and the many Democrats then dismissed the caliphate building project in Iraq. You know, they then said, oh, it doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. I mean, you had John Brennan, who was the counterterrorism advisor to President Obama, call it a, an absurd, feckless delusion in 2011. That's what he called yeah. it, right? So that, that's, that's a good example I like to use. That's John Brennan went on to become CIA director. That's a good example of how American policymakers and officials um, haven't taken the jihadis' goals and strategy and political desire seriously they've dismissed it it's been dismissed over and over again when we talk about afghanistan we go on and on about it but what's what's the central thing the central assumption underlying the negotiations with the taliban bill the central assumption is what you have and i talk about all the time that they don't really want to build an islamic emirate in afghanistan that they're willing to politically reconcile with the afghan government right do you aware of any evidence that that's true bill i'm not i'm not aware of any evidence not real evidence no you know. If you read what they're telling the world, the, it's the opposite is true. I mean, you had a fatwa issued seven days after the the signing of the withdrawal deal that the, that the Taliban it said they didn't fight just for democracy or to, to share power with the government. They fought to establish, reestablish the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan with Mullah Habitullah as its emir. And, you know, look, turning back to the, to the Islamic State, pre- President Obama called it the JV team, and the common narrative of on the Islamic State was that it was only waging a local insurgency. Well, how did that turn out? I mean, you know, this is this is what's so frustrating. Did anyone ever pay a political price or was corrected for making such statements? No. And and, and these types of things, these bad ideas, continue to continue to persist, and people continue get to to get promoted. And back to to. You know, you know back- let me give you one quick point on that. So, yeah. so then, what's the politics of this is all just totally twisted because then President Trump runs in 2016, accusing Obama of being the founder of ISIS for withdrawing troops from Iraq. But then President Trump himself shows absolutely no patience for the U.S. presence in Iraq or Syria. Right? I mean, you know, he he, he then is railing against the, the U.S. You know. I mean, quite to our amazement, actually. I think this is one thing I'm surprised at how effective it was to, to sort of remove the territory from ISIS with such a small American force, well, although it didn't defeat ISIS and they wait their Lebanon's insurgents. But the U.S. had a very small presence in Syria of about 2,000, 2,500, whatever it was, American troops who were basically acting in a support role for frontline uh, Kurdish fighters, the Syrian Democratic Forces, which really a front for the PKK. That's, again, a whole other episode we can do. Um, but in any event, that working well, especially that, designated ter- terrorist group, right? Yeah, who, one of the many contradictions in all this. But in any event, retentions. But the idea that um, you know the U.S. had a very small footprint in Syria and was effective in removing um, ISIS from its territory and having 
tangible gains that were caught. Any cost-benefit analysis would have to come up saying this was effective, unlike in Afghanistan where maybe more money has been wasted. But um, you could look at it from that perspective. And then what does Trump do? He gets on, he sort of repeats the Rand Paul points and basically got to get out of Syria now for like, and at that point, I think the reports were it was 2,200 troops in Syria after he himself had, had uh, criticized President Obama from cutting and running from the fight against ISIS, allowing them to build their caliphate. So it's just, you know, all this is just twisted. I think in another podcast, I described it as scrambled eggs. You know, it's very tough yeah, to keep, keep your, you know, keep, keep your, there's no consistent sort of thinking here. There's certainly not an omelet, you know, I mean, it's all a mess, you know, and you don't even know what this is in the scrambled eggs, you know? So, um, but you agree with that bill, right? I mean, oh. you know, what, president Trump's, president Trump's criticisms of all this don't, I mean, <laughs> there's no logical consistency here in any of this, no, you know I mean? No, and, and listen, I, we'll go back to Afghanistan, right? He he criticized the Bo Bergdog deal, which released the, the Taliban five, many, if not all, if I recall, linked to, to Al Qaeda, he said it was a horrible deal. And what did he do? He cut a horrible deal with the Afghan Taliban. And by the way, the Taliban five was on the Taliban's negotiating team. Yeah, the deal, so, the deal with the, the deal with the Taliban. So not only the Taliban five and the negotiating team in Doha, you criticize, but the deal, the withdrawal deal between the U.S. and the Taliban in Doha, called for an uneven, the same ratio, the same uneven swap, only in a yes. or, you know much greater 5, level. Thousand the one thousand, much greater level where the Taliban gets five thousand jihadis in return for one thousand. We don't even know who the one thousand are that the Taliban are holding. You know, so here not only you, you, you sort of, and, and you know this is this sort of the ridiculousness of all this, right? The the politics of this is just totally torturous. I mean, it's, it's just awful it's to watch. Twisted, you know, twisted Tom. It yeah, makes yeah, I, it, it makes it, really, me, it makes me not want to put American service members in harm's way when I see the politicians are this sort of, you know, completely incompetent and, and illogical on all this stuff, you know, I mean, that's, yeah. that's basically where you and I are coming from, right? Is that, you know, it's, we serve, we serve more of the American service member than we do their leadership. You know? Yeah. I mean, how can I ask American service members to sacrifice their lives for this mess, for this, for, for feckless political leadership that has no understanding? I mean, it's in a perverted way made me an isolationist, but in a different sort of way. Like I understand the U.S. needs to use force to defend itself at times. I believe that should be limited. But doing it the way we're doing it by putting our service members in harm's way for for we're not looking to win these wars. We're, shit, we're not even looking to... Well, it's not, even, to, it's not even that we're not looking to win, but now now we don't even have a stable sort of yeah. keep keep them at bay posture. Yeah, right? that, that's I mean, exactly what I was going to say. Mean, I mean, point, point is, you, you, words on that. You look, like, you look at Syria, and it's just even a support role is not yeah. is politically not viable. You know, where, yeah, where, and, you, know, you, uh, you have troops. There was two Americans killed in Iraq recently. They're in a support role um, because we're feckless on the Shia militias there. And it, it's... That's the real irony of this is we're often, again, it, it is a certain bizarre corner, but they're we're seen as warmongers or this or pro, whatever. Every time we write or say something about the Taliban peace deal, I get I get the, oh, so what? You want to keep our troops in Afghanistan? Again, with, withdraw deal. Yeah, withdraw deal. Uh, yes, yes, the yeah, withdraw yeah, deal. Yeah, Tom, yeah. you will correct me till the end of the— Yes, no, the... It, is, it is. I see it too. Like, you know, but, you know, this is not—it's not an argument for, you know, keeping Americans in Afghanistan. It's an argument against whitewashing the Taliban and absolving the Taliban on the way out the door. That's the point. Like, you know, the U.S. doesn't have to, the U.S. doesn't have to bend over and be servile and credulous in the face of the Taliban as the U.S. withdraws from Afghanistan. And that's what this this negotiating process has led to. It's really disgraceful, I think. And you and I have talked about, by the way, when President Obama withdrew from Iraq, 
Did he seek the permission of the Islamic State of Iraq, Al-Qaeda and Iraq's front group right. at the time to do so? Did it do that? No, he didn't, right? He just withdrew from Iraq. Now, of course, it didn't work out so well. Uh, but but the idea that you need the Taliban's permission to withdraw forces is, is sort of uh, contradicted by both the massive drawdown in Afghanistan we've seen from a peak of about 100,000 to now less than 10,000 today. Most of that withdrawal was during the Obama years. And also the withdrawal from Iraq, you know, where all American forces were withdrawn at one point without getting permission of the jihadis. But this, you know, leads us to the third segment here. Um, and by the way, you know, just one little note on that last part of this about the, the, the endless wars narrative. You know, it's not even that we think that all the left-wing critiques are wrong. Of course not. You know, Elizabeth Warren, Senator Elizabeth Warren, yeah. during, during one hearing, you know, I think it was the confirmation hearing for General Miller in Afghanistan, but maybe it was another general. I don't know. They come and go, you know. Uh, but, uh, but Elizabeth Warren, Senator Warren at one point read off a list of statements talking about how the U.S. military said that they were turning the corner over and over again in Afghanistan, you know. And that clearly wasn't the case. You and I objected on the same grounds, right? I mean, the U.S. military and President Obama at one point said that they had broken the Taliban's momentum. That wasn't true. That was true. in 2000, I want to say 12, or was it 11, 12? Yeah, somewhere around there. I mean, it, it, all, gets I mean, mur- it all gets murky now. This is the problem with these. <laughs> that's the problem with, the, that's the real problem with the endless wars, right? We have the I mean, same, their, momentum, same was, again. their yeah. momentum was so broken that eight years later, the U.S. groveled begging, to get begging for a withdrawal, a, deal. A withdrawal yeah. deal. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I didn't exactly. call it a peace deal there, Tom. Yeah, I good, consciously good. am working on that one. Well, but that's the point, right? I mean, you know, there are valid left-wing and right-wing critiques of all sure. this stuff. I think what's different about us is we're just not looking to whitewash the jihadis, you know? Uh, which is which is which you see this constant tension in that regard. You see that constant push to do that. But let's get to the third segment here because we just start. I just teased the drawdown from by President Obama uh, during his eight years in power. And you know, again, he he claimed to bring the Iraq War to a responsible end, and then claimed that he was going to do the same thing in Afghanistan. Of course, that didn't happen. But you know, the third segment of this podcast in episode ten here is about the nine eleven wars in the era of great power competition. And one of the things we've seen in defense department circles, defense circles, intelligence circles is this idea that the U.S. needs to pivot away from fighting jihadists in order to counter China and Russia. But, Bill, uh, most of the pivots already happened, folks. I mean, what what are you talking about? You know, I mean, there's not some massive Iraq-style surge or brief, short-lived Afghan-style surge going on anywhere. You know, what what, what are you looking at? You know, the U.S., again, what what the, the subject of President Trump's ire was this small contingent of American forces in Syria that was backing up local forces to, to basically to decaliphate ISIS, right? Um, you know, this wasn't 100,000 strong. You know, in fact, we looked up the numbers, and of course, at the peak, there was about 200,000 American service members deployed in Afghanistan and Iraq. As of early this year, when I looked at the numbers, it was only about 20,000, if not less, who were deployed in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria. And now it's even less than that. You know, so that's, that's less than a tenth. Now, of course, there are contractors and others who were who are amplifying those numbers, who are uh, you know adding to those numbers. But the, Tom, uh, they're not combat troops. I mean, despite right, the common perception right. of mercenaries, they're manning chow halls and doing you know support work on the bases that's been largely outsourced. You know, and instead of having military mechanics, you got uh, you got con. You know, so that's that's if people citing that number are either ignorant or knowingly uh, conflating the two. Yeah, and in fact, the the contractor strategy for Afghanistan was turned down, right? Eric Prince had this. It was. Sort yeah. of, sort that was sort Prince's of, idea to yeah. actually put in a sort of uh, a mercenary militia, and uh, you know, 
Instead, Probably. now instead we're now we're going to treat the Taliban as if they're our uh, yeah. counterterrorism partner. So you know, it's, it's just how how torturous. This, again, I'm keep using the word torturous, but that's because this is all very difficult to cover because none of it makes any sense really if you think about it uh, strategically. But then, of course, we also have several thousand more deployed to Af- Africa as well, and they're mostly there to contain Shabab, but also in West Africa to contain the jihadis. But you know, we were looking up the numbers bill, and Indo-Pacific Command, according to the Defense Department, has more than four times the personnel of any other combatant command including CENTCOM, which, of course, oversees the entire Middle East, AFRICOM, which we've talked about. You know, Indo-Pacific Command is already the force posture for the Indo-Pacific Command, which is responsible, obviously, for China and the surrounding region, is already four times the personnel of any other command. There's already, this pivot has already happened away from, mostly happened away from the wars in the Middle East, you know. I mean, it's still war fighting going on, sure, but it's not nearly what it was in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I think that this argument really demonstrates, not that there, we'll talk about this a little bit. There's definitely a rising challenge from China, sure. You know, there's ongoing problems from Russia, absolutely. You know, and, and these these are priorities for the U.S. And they should probably be more of a priority than sort of a jihadi group in, in the long run, right? Um, but the idea that we need to pivot away or end the 9-11 wars to, to take on great power competition just isn't backed up by the resource allocations that we've just outlined for people, you know? There are already plenty of resources devoted to China. I'm not pining for a war against China. I know you're not either. Please, but, you know, no. Yeah, but I mean, the bottom line here is this seems to us to be more of an argument because in reality, a lot of people in the defense world don't really want to fight the jihadis anymore. Yeah, I, I mean, that's really, these again, these wars are difficult to fight. They sh- often show very little progress. They are hard on personnel that are deployed, especially those who are, at, when they are not in a support role, the tip of the spear these days tends to be our special operations forces, and it tears through them, and it's tough on deployments. God bless them. They are, you know, they're heroes of the United States, those you who are fighting at the tip of the spear and are asked to do so at rate, you know, at ridiculous rates, constant deployments. How hard that must be on you and your families is, uh, you and that's know. A, and that's a, a significant critique of the war in Afghanistan, for sure. It, you know, too, too few people have been asked to carry too much of the burden. Yes, yeah. That's a critique of our overall, of, you know, you know that 99.6% of our population are not even, don't even know anyone that are fighting in these wars is a national disgrace. Um, so, you know, one of the things that, that really bothers me about the pivot, right, is it's, well, we, we're going to, we need to show strength against China and against Russia. Oh, let, yeah. let them have it, Bill. I, this is, this is going to be, I like this. Go, go for it. Yes, we've talked about this. Let them have it. Yeah, so U.S. military strategy used to be that we were prepared to fight one major war against a great competitor, against the superpower, Russia, and then one minor or one medium-sized war. That would be something like North Korea and Iran. What we've demonstrated during these, these, this long war, these endless wars, these 9-11 wars, is that we can't even beat a third-rate power like Afghan, like the Taliban in Afghanistan. 19 years, we've had a muddled strategy, and we've been completely unable to, to beat a group like this. Yes, I recognize there's problems such as Pakistani support. Pakistan, a third-rate power, we can't strong-arm them, particularly when they have a power like India on the other side of the border, a natural enemy. We can't partner with them to force the Pakistanis to end its support for the Taliban. No, we got to cut some horrible withdrawal deal with the Taliban. And yet, we think that this projects strength. So what we're actually giving the Chinese and the Russians and 
the Iranians and any other uh, the North Koreans is a blueprint on how to defeat the United States. These countries know that meeting the United States on an open battlefield is probably a bad idea. Although the Chinese do seem to be closing some gaps technologically. And is the U.S. military really willing to look how casually averse we've been in Afghanistan and Iraq and places like that? Are we really willing to do a hot war? What happens if a U.S. carrier is sunk in the Taiwan Straits? Are we really willing to go toe-to-toe with China on their turf? I mean, it's gone badly for us. And this is what really bothers me. You know, and, and here's the thing. This might be what bothers me the most. The people who are going to be entrusted in fighting these wars, and I'm not talking you company commanders and battalion commanders and sergeants and platoon commanders. You guys, I know you guys would fight to win. But is your leadership willing to fight to win? They've just demonstrated over 19 years that they are unwilling to fight to win and, to win and do what's necessary and, and stand up to the political leadership. So... We're going to entrust them to fight the Chinese? I think if we actually did go to war with China, things would get real ugly real fast. You'd, you'd, we'd show the dearth of, of, of courage and leadership at the top levels of our generals and admirals. And there'd have to be a lot of turnover before you know we could right that ship. And would that be enough time to do so? So yeah, I'll end my tirade right there, Tom, and let you chime in. No, I mean, I, I basically agree. I mean, I, you know, if I, I've said over and over again, if I were a Chinese general watching the conduct of the war in Afghanistan or any of these other conflicts, looking at the erratic politics out of America, the erratic pol- political decision-making that's going on governing what's known as the endless wars, looking at the U.S. military's lack of consistency in terms of just down to something we focus on all the time, just understanding the enemy, getting basic understanding, basic facts right about who you're fighting. They've gone awry in, in that regard numerous times. Um, you know, I mean, are the Haqqanis reconcilable? Remember that talking point we had to deal oh with? I, guess, I mean, you know, I mean, Lord, Lord Almighty, you know, and, and, you know, there's all this nonsense you see through the years, you know, the point is, and, you know, and, and, and the special inspector general for Afghan recon, reconciliation, uh, reconstruction, sorry, not reconciliation, reconstruction, <laughs> uh, you know, Seagar, you know, talked about the you know, brain drain, you know. And that's one of the other factors in these so-called endless wars is there's constant turnover of personnel with, from the top, you know, generals leading the war in Afghanistan to person, support personnel. There's no consistency in understanding who you're fighting or what you're doing. And it allows um, all sorts of bad ideas to creep in because nobody's been around long enough to remember that it's a bad idea, to know why it's a bad idea, to know how it doesn't match the reality on the ground. And so none of that, none of that speaks uh, well to fighting a long war in the future against any adversary, right? None of that indicates that yeah. the U.S. should think it's willing to fight a long war against anybody in the future in an efficient manner. And I, I think if I were a Chinese general looking at this, I would say, you know what? Uh, I see a lot of liabilities here that I can exploit because, you know, by the way, all I have to do is set up, uh, you know, a, a, a subunit of the Chinese that wage insurgency against American forces somewhere and just say, oh, you know, they're not really the China, not really answering to the Chinese government or the Chinese Communist Party. And you have a bunch of uh, apologists who will quickly jump on board to say, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. You know, they're not really not really America's adversaries. They're just local insurgents. You know, I mean, we've the, seen that. those who have been trained and to understand the idea of disconnect the dots will begin disconnecting the dots on any type of Chinese-backed insurgency. I mean, look, you, you still see this with, with, a, with and, respect and just, to just, Iranian-backed just, militias in Iraq. I, sure, it's amazing sure. that people can say this. When Qasem Soleimani yeah. was killed alongside the leader of the Populator, Popular Mobilization Forces, which is the group that oversees those militias, and it's, yeah, yeah. And by the way, just for the record, the idea of having any kind of coin doctrine in Asia right now 
strikes me as probably one of the most horrific things I've heard anybody propose, right? There was this report, there was this report by, uh, I mean, have you not been watching what happened to coin against the jihadis, you know, and how, how we can't even maintain that, you know, uh, and we're now, you know, bending over to appease the Taliban, Al Qaeda's oldest and longest standing ally. You, you want coin somewhere else? You know, I mean, I mean, it's just, I mean, forget it. You know, I mean, there was this report um, issued a while ago about even on North Korea, how this, this idea was floated. We need to figure out what a, a counterinsurgency in North Korea will look like. And I just was thinking to myself, why? Who the heck wants to wage a counterinsurgency in North Korea, you know? Are with you, are you, China on yeah. the back door? I mean, uh, are you kidding me? We couldn't do it with Pakistan on the back door of Afghanistan. Yeah. And we're yeah. going to – I mean, and I seem to recall this thing called Vietnam as well and how things didn't go well. So we're, actually, the counterinsurgency fight went pretty well there overall, but we weren't committed. And do you think we're going to – you know, that and that was – 40 plus years ago 50 years ago and we were willing to to do things like that we're not we don't have the political leadership and the will and and people are no and this countrymen are wired this way anymore no and this is coming from two guys who you know you and i you know basically supported more 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 than not the counterinsurgency efforts in iraq and afghanistan but we saw that there was no willingness to sustain it there was no consistency and that it was so and that it was basically um you know ended pretty quickly uh, overall and that there was no willingness to sort of keep going with it. And so I, the idea you're going to transport that somewhere else, I mean, I, there's a lot to, to, there's a lot to say to speak well of counterinsurgency doctrine. Don't get me wrong. The point is that we have no political or military will yep. to, to maintain it, you know. I was actually opposed to the to the mission in Afghanistan because pre, look, President well, Obama. Well, the 18 month timeline, right? The 18 month yeah, timeline. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, he so told I, General yeah. Petraeus, "I'm going to I'll pull the plug right. on this, and you need to right. shut up if that happens." Right. Uh, he's going to make the decision. So I knew we sacrificed what 2,500 American troops for nothing. Right. I mean, that was a political, a purely political move by the Obama administration because they thought that they can beat the Taliban to the negotiating table. That didn't work so well. And 2,500, I think that's the number that died during the surge. It could be 3,000. It could be less. Were killed. And how many were, yeah. were maimed and how many carry the, you know, the horrors of, of PTSD and things of that yeah. nature to these days for no for no political objective that was that was accomplished or nothing was yeah, accomplished and then that you know. and you know that that's what needs to be understood and that's why you know we just we're not willing the reality is with these wars we're not willing to do what we need to do so maybe it is a good idea to end the end, our involvement in the endless wars but I'm gonna say this. Don't be surprised if you get hit back here again or Americans get killed and get because it's going to happen because they're not going to stop fighting. Um, I'm just going to leave it at that. Yeah, no, I, I, I'll, I'll leave it with this. One of the few articles I've had rejected in my tenure as a writer, as, a, as an incredibly marginal public figure, was an article talking about how Obama's timeline on the, the surge in Afghanistan basically was going to negate any of the the so-called benefits to it that basically you know when you're when you show you're not really committed for any uh, significant amount of time that you have an 18 month timetable and then it's up you know we had comments from Taliban commanders and others saying they're just going to wait us out um, you know there's some revisionist scholars who say that didn't really matter and the timetable didn't matter no it did matter we watched it mattered for sure it did you know uh, but the point is is that you know the U.S. has had one foot out of Afghanistan since then really since 2014 even earlier. Um, has had you know one foot out of Iraq since then, more than one foot out of Iraq. You know, has all has had all but a pinky toe outside of Iraq. You know, um, it's not like these endless wars are being fought with um, D-Day style sort of uh, uh, 
forces dedicated to them. The U.S. has basically settled into this posture of trying to prevent the jihadis, the worst case outcomes of the jihadis taking over and governing territory. But as we're seeing now in Afghanistan and elsewhere, that's no longer politically tenable. That basically even having Americans in a support role to try and prevent the jihadis from building their emirates is untenable. And that's the point about all this. That's the point of this episode, really, is that you want endless war. You don't want endless wars, right? Well, I don't want endless jihad. Neither does Bill. And that will have security ramifications for the West going forward, whether the Defense Department strategists, so-called strategists, want to consider that or not. So anyway, I think we'll leave it there. What do you think, Bill? I think that's perfect, Tom. All right. Well, thank you all for listening again to this week's episode of Generation Jihad. Uh, we really appreciate everybody who's tuning in to listen to us. As you can see, we don't really fit in with a lot of the <laughs> the uh, uh, sort of predominant narratives out there. Uh, please do subscribe to the show. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your shows. And we will see you again next week.